Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. You know, uh, I've been away for several weeks and I came back rather humbled just seeing all the things that were going on in the church. It's good to get a chance to be away and to rest and reflect and to realize how much you appreciate a group of people such as yourself. It was also quite humbling to know when I got back that uh, we had over 375 people signed up for the one-to-one tonight, which means we're going to have a fourth service, uh, so to speak, at uh, 7 o'clock. So you can be in prayer for me. I can make it through the whole day. We'll have to hold it here in the sanctuary. But isn't that exciting? 375 people is an incredible number. And then to hear what's been going on this week with the STEP project, uh, with Judy Severe and Lonnie and all those. And uh, I saw Bill Parkinson just a few minutes ago as I walked into the sanctuary, and he's about to take eight of our people here at the church, and they're flying to West Africa, to the Ivory Coast, and to Ghana to serve there in these next couple of weeks. Alan Mesco and Bill among those. Hey, it's great to be in a church like this. It's great to be in worship like this. It's great to know that we value things that the scripture values and are important and will make a difference at the end of our life. What an incredible pleasure to be at the end of your life and know that you lived it well. And what a tragedy to be at the end and know you didn't. Can we pray for those people and for the decisions that need to be made and the message this morning? Would you pray with me? Lord, I am so grateful here this morning to be numbered among a group of people who love you, who desire to serve you, and whose commitment goes farther than a statement of faith. Whose commitment goes to the soles of their feet, to their fingers, to their time to sacrifice. Lord, I... I thank you for those people who are willing to give up time to travel overseas, for those who just returned from Haiti, for those who are going to Ghana, and for others, Lord, who are on various trips of missions to reach out to people. I thank you for those people, even some I heard this week, who reached out to an employee or to a friend and who began to share the gospel. I thank you for the moment yesterday when I was working out and started talking to the manager of this health club and he'd already said that a member of our church had challenged him to go through the one-to-one. I thank you for those children who've been blessed in Haiti and in the inner city as people in our church have reached out to them. Thank you for a church like this. And now, Father, I pray that you would continue to equip us for those who are preparing to reach out to the lost as the Billy Graham crusade approaches, I pray that you would encourage them and help them that they might be equipped, not shoddily, but completely, in such a way that would bring them confidence and excitement in stepping out and offering the good news of Jesus Christ to another fellow human being. Lord, we give you praise for this day and we pray now that you might bless the teaching of your word 
That you might allow us to see past the veil of this world into the presence of your precious Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray this morning. Amen. You know, when you get back from a trip and uh, there's all kinds of letters to read and bills to pay and those kind of things, and also I like to catch up on what's been going on in the local community by reading the newspapers. And uh, this week I read with interest an article that was in one of the local newspapers concerning a Frenchman who has been visiting Little Rock this last week, Francois Beirou, who visited the United States uh, from the French Parliament. And maybe there's even some here who had the opportunity to meet uh, Mr. Beirou. He was here this week as part of the International Visitor Program. He's been here to the United States before it's sponsored by the U.S. Information Agency. And in this article, he was giving his reflections on the United States from a European's point of view. He had been here before, and you know, when you, when you step into a culture periodically, in some ways you can see that culture more accurately than we ourselves who are immersed in it in the day-to-day. And as he looked at it, And as he commented on it, he said that he had seen vast changes in the United States just recently, just within his last visit, which was only a few years ago. And let me quote him. He says, Today America seems involved in big ethics debates. This is quite different from a few years ago. It seems like the main problems of Americans today are around burning the flag and abortion and the private lives of political leaders. From the eyes of the European, it doesn't seem the main, these are the main problems. It doesn't seem that the main problems of America have to do with ethics, but education and health care, budgets and deficits and trade. Well, when I read that, I said in my heart, you know, I can't agree with Mr. Baru less. And not that I am being critical towards him, but he speaks as one who is a pragmatist and as one who has not yet discovered that the real secrets to America's greatness has been her deep and rich moral roots. You know, when another Frenchman, Alexis de Tocqueville, visited the United States, in the 1830s, he wrote, I think, more insightfully concerning the American people. He says, all the economic and political flux and volatility in American society, this is 1830, by the way, is counterbalanced by the fact that everything in the moral field in American life is certain and fixed. Christianity reigns without obstacles by universal consent. Our struggle today in America that Mr. Baru has rightfully observed is that those moral anchors and those rich moral roots because of the 60s and the 70s and part of the 80s have been cut away, gnawed away by a secularistic society And we have been left with little to hold ourselves back from our own excesses and selfishness. 
We have no restraints. And that's a scary thing, isn't it? To live in a society where the society continually bombards you with statements that there are no restraints. It's just all freedom. And yet we have found that that licentiousness has not led us into freedom at all, has it? But into bondage. And now America is struggling. And the debates are around ethics. We're trying to discern our national moral identity today. And I expect that that debate will last far into the 90s and even into the 21st century. What Baru has observed correctly is that America is struggling with itself in light of a moral vacuum created in the last 30 years. Do you feel that? Do you sense that in our schools, in our institutions, in our politics, in our private lives? We are gasping, aren't we, for moral air, but unsure. And in many cases, unable as a people to firmly and accurately even discern what is right in day-to-day living and what is wrong. Value relativism, flexible ethics, those are the order of the day, aren't they? And we all know that to be true. And it undercuts our Christian lives. And I've been a victim of it, and so have you. Nowhere is that better seen in the abortion debate. Interestingly enough, as they take these polls, and you have to read through the polls, but one of the most accurate polls, I think, saw that 80% of Americans, when just asked flatly, is abortion wrong? 80% of Americans say, yes, it's wrong. But then half of that 80% say they still want the right to do it. We're so confused. That's the drift. We're lost in that regard. And where is the church? Well, in some cases, the church is making a great impact. But I think if we have to be realistic, overall, the church seems to be paralyzed in many respects. George Gallup took a poll in March of 1988 And he found that the number of Americans who think religion is losing its influence in America has grown sharply since 1986, just two years ago. Or three years ago now. 49% now view religion as losing its influence as compared to 36% just two years ago. And there's substance for that. Did you know that? Did you know in 1900, for every 10,000 Americans, there were 27 churches? Did you know today... There are 12 churches in America for every 10,000 people. Did you know in the 21st century, in the year 2001, there'll be 10 churches for every 10,000 people? Boy, those are sobering statistics. Christian lifestyles continue to blend ever more with an amoral social landscape. I like the insightful statement by George Barna and William McKay. They have a good book out called Vital Signs. And then the subtitle is Social Trends in the Future of Christianity. And they say this. They say that the average Christian today, and I quote, rather than adhering to Christian philosophy of life that is occasionally tarnished by lapses into infidelity, whatever that might be, is now just the opposite. Many Christians today are profoundly secularized with only occasional lapses into Christianity. 
Do you sometimes feel like that? I think we all do because we live in a nation that is morally adrift, which is looking for its moral identity. And that's why the ethics debates are so strong. We're in a power struggle over ethics, and contrary to what Mr. Baru may think, it is the most important issue, and you're on the line for it, and so am I. Our moral identity is at stake, and we have to ask the question without embarrassment, how then should we live? Not believe, live in the day-to-day of American life. Now this morning, I want to look in Nehemiah chapter 10 and look at a people who are addressing that exact same issue. This is not without historical precedent. This has occurred in other nations and other times, and it occurred in the life of Israel some 2,600 years ago. And so in Nehemiah 10, we're going to see a group of people who address this issue successfully. And by that, we're also going to conclude the second major division of this book. Remember the first section, chapters 1 through 7, it basically dealt with the rebuilding of the wall. Uh, Getting the city up and running again. Uh, The preeminent needs were safety needs, survival needs. But as we've looked at chapters 8, 9, and 10, we have discovered that we've moved into a totally different section, and that section is the rebuilding of the interior walls of the character of the people. Chapter 8, Revelation. Ezra teaches them the law again. The law becomes the new social contract of the people. Revelation. Chapter 9, Remorse. The people begin to see how far they are out of skew with that revelation. And as Bill taught us last week, there was great remorsing. They rehearsed their sins publicly, which they needed to do. They needed to get in touch with how far they are off the mark, just like we need to know today. And quit excusing ourselves. And then that brings us to chapter 10. Now if they'd have just stopped in chapter 9, as many people do, as we counsel people, they come in, they're sorry for their situation, but that's as far as they go. Nothing would have happened. But boy, when you get to chapter 10, they go from revelation to remorse to reconstruction. And that's what we're going to be talking about here in the service here this morning. How then shall we live? It's a great question. And actually in this last section really begins, chapter 10 really begins in verse 38. Let's look at verse 38 of chapter 9. Here they have remorse, they've talked about God's faithfulness, they've heard God's revelation, and then after all that in this great prayer, in verse 38 they say, now because of all this, this revelation and the feelings we felt in hearing it, we are making an agreement in writing. The people decide to address their lifestyles and the lifestyle crisis, and their moral identity crisis, not with just talk, but if you notice the key words there, in writing. Ezra was the one who probably drafted this document, like certain 
founding fathers drafted our Constitution, but he sets it before the people, and it's very practical, as we'll see, but he puts it down in writing. You know, they say that writing makes an exacteth man. Writing makes an exacteth nation. That's why we have a Constitution. That's who we are. When, when Alan Bloom wrote his book, The Closing of the American Mind, he says, who are Americans? The only document besides the Bible he could turn to is that Americans are defined by a constitution. It's in writing. It's clear. Writing makes an exacteth people. It writes out things so that it clarifies intent like words could never do. You know, if you just make an agreement in words, it's so easy after the next day and the next day and the next day follows for you to begin to drift into personal interpretations that are self-serving about what you think your words meant. But oftentimes, and at least most of the time, not so with writing. That's why we have contracts. That's why when you buy your house and you take out a mortgage, you put your names on that sheet of paper so the bank can know that you really mean it. That's why we have laws, and not laws that are oral laws, we have laws that are on the books. Because when they're in writing, they're not vague, they're not fuzzy, and most of all, they don't get forgotten. And so Ezra pins this piece of lifestyle legislation for the people so it can bring clarity and accountability and it can answer the question for the nation, if it so chooses, how then should we live? They wrote it out and they wrote it out in specifics. And we'll address those specifics in a moment. But I want to look here at the first part of the chapter before we get to those specifics. Look at verse 38 again. He says, we are making an agreement in writing and on the sealed document, and here's the next key word, are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Let me give you a statement I think is worth writing down. Decisions are rarely commitments unless they have your name on it. Decisions are rarely commitments unless they have your name on it. Now I know we would like to pretend that well you have my word that should be good enough. And in some people's cases their word is good enough. But we all know that we are flesh. And there are certain things about putting your name down that lifts you to a higher more official status. Those of you who do business every day and make deals and sales Know the importance of a signature. You know the grueling hours of negotiations and two guys can get up from the table and shake hands and say, yeah, we'll put it down on paper tomorrow. And then the next day, that particular man comes back and said, no, I don't think that. But you shook my hand. No, I know, but it's not in writing. We know that feeling of when it falls through in that regard. I know the feeling if I'm having some elective surgery and the doctor puts in front of me this sheet of paper saying, that this is the way it's supposed to go, but if it doesn't go this way, you're not going to do this and this and this to me, and then before he puts the knife to me, 
He says, will you sign? When you go and purchase a car, and you have to take out a loan, the banker is not going to take your word. He's going to ask you to sign. When Mike and I and some others went to Colombia with South American Mission, we had to sign a little hostage release form. And we had to put our name on it. And that name meant that if we were carried away by the Guajara Indians, that we wouldn't be worth too much to the mission agency at that time. But they wouldn't have to feel like they had to put up a million dollar ransom to get us back. And would we understand that? Yes, I felt like I understood it. But that doesn't mean anything once I'm captured. <laughs> they want my signature to say, I really mean it. And therefore I need to do that. The power of the pen. The power of a written name. You know, in most societies, including ours in Israel in the 5th century, an agreement takes on a higher place when it's signed. You know, when I was on vacation, we were in Williamsburg, Virginia. And it was a great place to be on the 4th of July, this colony of Virginia, the capital colony of Virginia before the Revolutionary War. And it's a beautifully preserved colonial town, and we were in the capital. And I sat in a seat that George Washington sat at when he was a representative of the House of Burgesses. And he would debate issues for the colony of Virginia with Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson and John Randolph and others. And you kind of felt what they felt. And as our tour guide took us through there and he talked about the feelings these colonists had with breaking with England, you felt how important that was. They were, first and foremost, Englishmen from Mother England. And their little colony, everything they did, they did it exactly as they did it in England. Their gardens and everything else. Because they were Englishmen. And yet, because of the taxation and the repression, they were struggling with whether to make the break. And Patrick Henry said, we're Americans. And John Randolph said, no, we're Englishmen. And they went back and forth. And I'm sure all those guys had their decisions privately about what they should do. But there came a time when they had to make a decision of distinction. And a document was drafted for colonial Virginia. And you had to put your name on it to say whether you really meant it or not. And some did, and some didn't. And some did thinking it was going to be okay, not realizing they were going to lose their farms and their fortunes. And others did, not realizing that they were signing away their lives. But they did it. The power of a signature. Talk becomes cheap in front of a name, let me tell you. And these people, by putting their name, were lifting themselves to a much higher level of responsibility and accountability. Now what you have before you in chapter 10, the first 27 verses, are the key leaders who signed this document, this moral document of distinction. And basically there are four groups of leaders. The first name on there is Nehemiah, the John Hancock, so to speak, of the day. <clears throat> I kind of have this feeling he penned his name in rather large letters. And then what you have following that are the priests, the sons of Aaron, in verses 2 through 8 who conducted the sacrifices inside the temple, the Holy of Holy area. 
Then you had the Levites in verses 9 through 13. That was the tribe that was not given land. The only tribe of the 12 tribes that weren't given land because they were to be God's own possession. They were the group of people who were to maintain and care for all the religious activities of Israel. But they were leaders. And then there were the community group leaders of the people. In verses 14 through 27, the lay leaders, the people of influence in the everyday of, of life in Israel. Those were the ones who signed, and it would, would be naive, I think, for you and I as we read through that list of leaders to come to the conclusion that that's all the leaders there were in Israel. Do you think that was all? Do you think that was everyone? I don't. I think that there were others who looked at this document and said, I can't do it. I don't like that. I'd like to change this or that. You know, John Randolph, as he debated with Patrick Henry, when the day came to sign, he could not sign. So, though his sons stayed in Virginia, he sailed back to England because he was an Englishman. And you know, I thought as I listened to that, his son, by the way, stayed and became the personal assistant to General George Washington. But as he went back to Virginia, as a leader in Virginia, I thought, I wonder what would have happened if he would have stayed. You know, I could have gone to Washington, D.C. and stood in a shrine to John Randolph as a president of the United States, an American hero. But as it was, he's an indistinguishable Englishman because he couldn't sign. Many people struggle with signing something. They don't believe it. They, don't, they feel it's too confining. They don't want the responsibility of what their signature will bring or they don't want the accountability of what that means. And you know, some people have trouble especially signing things in churches. We, we have a background where people have come and unfortunately have been pressured, coerced, or maybe manipulated into signing things and so have almost this, this real intense repulsion towards signing something. In fact, the word that I often hear when we've had times where maybe we've asked for learning center and signing things or, or giving, and maybe you're going to sign something, though all our giving up to this point in time has been unsigned, it's almost like <clears throat> that's legalism. That's the term that I hear. That's the spiritual term that has been selected out of context to veil what I think is real accountability, if I can speak real boldly. Legalism doesn't even mean that, by the way. If you take the word legalism biblically and take a look at it biblically, legalism means the practice of those who would say that you must do certain things in order to merit your salvation, to be saved. You've got to do certain things. That is true biblical legalism. But now, if someone asked you to sign something in a church or to do something in a church, it may be wrong, it may be coercive. It may be manipulative. And there have been a lot of things that have been done wrong in that regard. But if they're not asking you to do something that they're saying is going to give you salvation, it's not legalistic. That's a 
poor term to use. Just say it's wrong. Just say you're manipulating me. But don't use the biblical term legalism in that regard. But then we've also got to ask ourselves, though there have been wrong things done in that regard, is there a place among a group of Christians where we covenant together certain paths or responsibility and it's worth signing? Where it's more important than just your word? We have biblical precedent for it, don't we? I think that there is. Now, I'm not sure what all those occasions will be. But there is times, it's not legalistic, where signing your name says, I'm not going to make this vague. It's not going to be fuzzy, and I'm not going to forget, and you can hold me accountable, and I will put my name down. And I'm not earning my salvation. But I am saying, my decision is also a commitment. And decisions are not commitments. For the most part, unless they have your name on it. All society says that. Let's not be naive about that. Now what we see in verses 28 and 29 is the age-old principle that as the leaders go, so go the people. Look at verse 28. It says, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen or their brothers, that is their lay leaders, and their nobles, that is their priest and their governor, Nehemiah, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath. Now the key phrase in those verses is at the end of verse 28. All those who had knowledge and understanding. They weren't made to do it. Hear me. They did it because it made sense to them. They saw it was important. People do not follow well blindly. They may follow for a while. But they won't follow well. And ultimately they might even rebel. If they have been coerced emotionally. Rather than through solid understanding about what they're going to do. And this is the commitment that the Frenchman, the Tocqueville, noticed about Americans in the 1830s. You remember his statement? Christianity reigns without obstacles. How? He said, by mutual Consent, not coercion, by mutual consent. It's the same thing Victor Hugo saw about England in his day. He looked at England and he says, there are two books in England. One which she has made, one that has made her. Shakespeare and the Bible. But no more. And for America, no more. And the reason is because in its place, what reigns in American moral life is passion, in some case intellect, and in some case absolute mindlessness. Because of a morally flabby people as we steer this big boat without a rudder through national life. And who is going to change that? Politicians with policies 
are Christians with distinctive lifestyles? I think it's obvious what the answer is. Now what follows in verses 30 to 39 is I think most important for you to note. Not because of the particular issues that are addressed, but because these issues, now hear me, don't, don't, if there's nothing else you walk out with, walk out with this. Because what they decide to do is specific. It is absolutely specific according to the key issues of the day. A general commitment to the Bible means nothing if you don't address the real issues. I love what Martin Luther says, and nobody can challenge him about his commitment to Scripture. He says, if I preach the whole Word of God eloquently and exactly in every part, but I do not preach the Scriptures as exactly that point where my culture has issues and needs, then I have not preached the Word of God at all. Now their commitment, as we just saw, was to the Bible generally. But I want you to know that they also moved it down from that general kind of commitment that right now doesn't say anything specific down to the guts of where they lived. And that's very important in verses 30 to 39. They committed themselves to address from Scripture certain prominent social practices that they were engaged in at this part in their life. And by doing that, they touched the hot buttons of Jewish life or Jewish licentiousness. Three things that I want you to notice. Three features that they selected out that they said these are key to us really turning it around. One was in regards to marriage. That's verse 30. Secondly is in regards to the Sabbath and work and debts. That's two. And then in verses 32 to 39 is in regards to their religious system, in particular, the temple. Notice what he says about marriage, verse 30. Here's what they commit to. And boy, and I tell you, this is specific. They say that we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Hey, if there's an easy way to ruin your distinctiveness, just intermarry with pagans. And God had forbidden that in Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 7, Joshua 23, but everybody was doing it in Israel. Until now. And these people said, we're not going to do it anymore, but they didn't just give a word that next January would be easily forgotten. They said, we're going to sign on the dotted line and you can hold us accountable. And we're going to find, as we get to the end of this book, that's exactly what happens. We're not going to do this. Yeah, intermarrying is a way to move up the social ladder. And that's what they used to do. It's always good to marry a Hittite, Perizzite, or whoever other ite who has some money. And you can move up the social ladder and get a second chariot. But we're not going to do it. And it's going to hurt us at points. And it's going to be tough. And people are not going to understand. But God has commanded it. Therefore, we will obey. The second area. So they signed on to stop doing it. The second area concerned the Sabbath. Look in verse 31. As for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell... We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day, and we will forgo the crops the seventh year, that's the Sabbath year, by the way, and the exaction of every debt. Now, boy, those are specifics. 
in writing. You see, the people had felt that they could obey the Sabbath by not working themselves, but that they could go down and shop in the shopping centers with the pagans all day. And they thought, I'm not working, I'm just shopping. But what they soon found out was that they spent most of their day in commerce and very little doing what the Sabbath, as Ezra read the law, required them to do, and that is to rest, because they needed it, to reflect, because they needed to evaluate, and to get ready for the following week, and to worship the living God. Now they got a loophole in the Sabbath, but the problem was, after time, there was very little worship, and there was very little rest, there was a lot of materialism. And when Ezra read that law and they heard the real intent of the Sabbath, they wept. And they said, we got to stop this. Everybody's doing it, but we got to stop it because it's killing us. And it's eliminating our moral distinctiveness. And then they also touched their pocketbook. They said, and now we're going to get back to the Sabbath year. And we're going to give our crops a rest every seventh year. And not only that, but we're going to do what the law says. And every seventh year, we're going to forgive debts. And that hurts. But we're going to do it because God says it's best. And we believe Him. Because look at us. Look at what we thought all our freedoms would bring us. We thought we'd be great and rich and powerful. But where are we? We're in ruins. We're subjugated. We're under the control of Persia and we don't look any different than anybody else. That's who we are and why. Because we have not obeyed the Lord our God. That's why. So they signed on to obey the Sabbath. And then finally in verses 32 to 39, and I'm not going to read through these verses because they say many different things that we could spend all kinds of time dissecting except to say they signed on to start regularly supporting the temple by providing money and materials on a regular basis. They saw, as they listened to Ezra, that there is a direct link between their distinctiveness as a people and their priority at the temple. There's a relationship that they needed that. They saw that they needed to keep worship and Bible study and the activities and ceremonies of the temple and the sacrifices vibrant and alive and growing if they as a morally distinct people would be vibrant and alive and growing. And how do you do that? You do that from the heart. But if it's from the heart, and I hate to say it, but this is the bottom line, it'll come out of your pocketbook. It'll show in how you use your money. And so in this is a list of things that they committed to to give offerings, to give sacrifices, to support the priest, and all those other things. And they commit to do those things because they understand, like we need to understand, that if you can't regularly give your money, not just to this church, but to the things of God, then you worship greed, not God. When I make my check out regularly to give to a local church, this local church, and I give it away, It's not just a love note to God. It's a reminder to me as to who I really worship. And the more I struggle with it, the more I need to understand I'm struggling with God. And and, and every time I withhold some and hold it back, 
that I'm making a commitment in a direction and it affects the very moral fiber of my heart. And that is, I'm leaning into the temple of greed and out of the temple of God. We can give all the rhetoric we want, but that's the truth. So these specific applications became new disciplines for this now disciplined moral people. Until now, as I said, they lived as they wanted to live and it showed because they looked just like everybody else. But now with the reading of God's word, they started this moral reconstruction project with significant changes that weren't vague or fuzzy, but very specific. And no one forced them to do it and no one should ever force you to do it. They chose to do it because they understood it was from God. And He loved them. And He wanted the very best for them. So here's this new society as we close out chapter 10. They have their city, Jerusalem, rebuilt, don't they? They have their temple to worship in. They have walls to protect them from their enemies on the outside and they have a new code of conduct that would stabilize their society from the inside. And now they have postured themselves, if but for a season, and in their case, that's what it would be. But at least they had postured themselves to be what Jesus has asked us to be. And that is a light unto the world. It goes through the same process with us. You know, about five years ago, we drew up our own document of distinction. And we were committed to the Scriptures generally. I mean, we are called Fellowship Bible Church for a reason. And that middle name, Bible, means that our commitment is to the Scripture. But five years ago, we felt we needed to be more specific about our intentions here. To be specific in those intentions and so we drew up a document that would address what we thought were the key needs of our day. And in many ways, I believe it's more relevant today than when we wrote it five years ago. And since tomorrow is our 12th anniversary, we'll be 12 years old as a church tomorrow, I felt it'd be a good time to review it for you. And if you don't know what it is, then you might just turn your green sheet over and shut your Bibles for a minute. And let me ask you four questions. First of all, if I asked you what our document of distinction was, do you know it? That's the first question. Well, on your outline, it's written. And here is what it says. And it's very short, but it's very specific. It says that our purpose as a church is to become a church that manifests the reality of Christ to the world by equipping Christians to live lifestyles that are biblically accurate and personally pure and family-centered and evangelistically bold, and socially responsible, and in so doing, to become a resource for the larger body of Christ. Now, you stay right there for a moment. And let me give you some key words that are on that document. First is the phrase, equipping Christians. This is a church whose intent is specific. Our intent is to load you up, not wear you down, but to load you up for ministry. Our purpose as a body, if you're new here, or if you're even visiting here, or you don't know this, 
it's important for you to know why we do things. And what we're trying to create as a community. We are trying to equip you. We're not going to do the work for you. But to equip you. And if you're here to sit and just give idle time, this is not the place. In time, we want to bring you to a place where you have a ministry. And not a forced ministry. Not a coerced ministry. And not a manipulative ministry. An understood way of life that you say, that's the best thing to do for me. And you choose it from the heart. But that's our goal. The second thing is the word, you might just circle the word lifestyles. And though we put a heavy emphasis on teaching the scripture here, our ultimate emphasis is not your head. It's your life. And unless your life changes, unless your character begins to transform into the likeness of Jesus Christ in the choices you make daily, in the plans you make daily, in the pursuits that you pursue daily, in your responses to others in critical situations daily, unless you change and become distinctive, we are no different than the world, no matter how much we believe. So lifestyles is important. And then you'll notice those five lifestyle markers. See, we even got more specific than that. What are a Christian lifestyle? And we chose five things that we think are the hot buttons in our society today. Those things that touch us at critical places where we're so tempted not to be different, but the Scripture engages and implores us to be different. And those areas are to be biblically accurate. And you say, well, I thought it's a Bible church. We should be biblically accurate. This is the most biblically illiterate generation of the world. Right now. Two in ten teenagers that attend local churches in America cannot tell you the importance of Easter. Four in ten teenagers who attend a local church even know who wrote the Sermon on the Mount. That's the world in which we live. A lot of preaching... Not a lot of understanding. To be biblically accurate. Personally pure. And need I say more. Do we need people today who have integrity? Yes, it is possible to live in a degenerate society righteously. And I think a lot of our young people are hearing that it's impossible to be pure. It's not. Family-centered. And we took a lot of time to describe what is a biblical family just a few months ago. And I laid it out. Now the question is, do you choose to make that pattern the pattern of your marriage? Evangelistically bold. And boy, am I excited about tonight. And if anybody still wants to get on board, you're welcome. And then socially responsible. To come to a place in a narcissistic society where you learn that you don't live for yourself. But there are others who need you. The poor, the disadvantaged, those kind of things. Now that's the first question I ask. Do you really know that? Does that ring a bell when you come to Fellowship Bible Church? If you are a part of Fellowship Bible Church? Now the second question I would ask you is this. Do you want to be like this? Do you want this? And I'm serious when I ask, would you like your character to be marked by these characteristics? 
Would you like on your epitaph, on your tombstone, to say, this person lived a life that was personally pure, biblically accurate, socially responsible, family-centered, and evangelistically bold? Or would you like to be, this person made half a million dollars, had four houses, etc., etc., and looked good because he wore guests and Gucci and everything else? I mean, really... What do you want to be like? You have to make a decision. And you know what? A passing mental ascent here this morning is not good enough. It's not. It won't cut it. It won't get you there. That's why the third question, are you committed to it? And then I add, is your group committed to it? You wonder probably why I add group. Because you can say that you're committed but you need to ask yourself, is my group committed? And I list those two together because the group you choose as your primary social outlet says more about your values than you do. The group you hang around with, and if you want to get a good look at what your values really are, you think of who your best friends are, and you look at their families, their purity, their biblical accuracy, and those kind of things, and you think about them. And they'll tell you a lot about what you really are and what you really want for your life. No matter how much up here you deceive yourself in thinking you want things. You think about who those people are. That's who you want to be. Your group says a lot about yourself. Well, I'm out of time. But I'm going to add one other if you'll permit me. Is that alright? Because I think this is important for me to finish. And I'm rusty because I've been away for a while. I'll use that as an excuse for my depravity. <laughs> as a church, these things, I believe, that we've listed on this document, on your green sheet, those are our moral distinctives. As people of Little Rock look at us, that's how they ought to feel about us. Because I'm telling you, I'm promising you, the world is hungering and thirsting after one person who looks like that. They are dying to see a real Christian whose life radiates these differences. I mentioned this young man in the health club. When I talked to him and he mentioned this church person who'd been working out, you know what he said to me? It was so, I just wanted to applaud. I didn't. But he pulled me over to the side and he said, yeah, I've been, he's been in here quite a bit. And he said, um, he asked me to go through this. And I need to do this. I had never been to church or anything. But he said, this guy really looks like what I thought a Christian should look like. Those are his exact words. Man, does that get you excited? He looked like a Christian. I don't care about his statement of faith. I like what he looks like. And he looked like a Christian. Well, we have this document. Do you believe it? Do you want it? Are you committed to it? Then if you are, you know what I'm going to ask you to do this morning or in the next few weeks? Would you sign it? And Mickey, I'm going to ask if you just hold this up. I decided we're going to put something up in our church for just a few weeks. And here's what it says. If I can kind of draw it. And there's a lot of space for names. 
but it says, we the people of Fellowship Bible Church, in order to form a more distinctive Christian community, do hereby commit ourselves this 30th day of June to live lifestyles that are biblically accurate and personally pure and family-centered and evangelistically bold and socially responsible. Now, I don't want you to sign that lightly. And if you're not ready today, I don't want you to sign it. And if you're not ready at the end of three weeks when we take it down, don't. Because I'm not forcing you to do it. And nobody is coercing you to do it. And you won't earn your salvation by putting your name there. But if you want to step up and say, I'm committed, and you can hold me accountable, then I offer it to you as Ezra offered it to his people 2,500 years ago. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the clear teaching of your word. It's great to be back. It's great to be with such a good group of people. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us think seriously and as seriously about our lives as we do certain areas of our lives, perhaps our business or whatever. Help us to realize it must be specific. And help us win the debate by the way we live in our country as our country asks this most crucial question. How then should we live? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.